we want to go when we're ready to go and we're having this. This has been a very organic bottom-up process. It takes time to do that. Um, we're doing big things. And, I, you know, you, you know me, I talked about 200 days uh, because I thought the kind of... I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check. And that was House Speaker Paul Ryan hedging his bet on when the American Health Care Act will come back up for a vote. But yes, Republicans' health bill is back, and so is this podcast. There's a lot up in the air on the repeal bill right now. The White House wants a quick vote before the president's first 100 days are up, but Ryan appears to know they don't have those votes. And then much that's unclear about the broader fate of Obamacare, as Trump is threatening to stop paying crucial subsidies. We have two great guests to help make sense of it all today. First, you'll hear from Cece Connolly, the former Washington Post health reporter turned Washington Health power broker as head of the Alliance of Community Health Plans. She'll explain how her health plan members are reacting to the tumult in D.C. Then after the break, I caught up with Cynthia Cox of the Kaiser Family Foundation to go deeper on the Obamacare subsidies, known as cost-sharing reductions, and the state of the Affordable Care Act exchanges. Cynthia co-authored a great new report this week on those issues. Quick housekeeping note, this is the first pulse check that I've done in a few weeks. My thanks to the terrific Jason Millman, who covered in the meantime, and Bridget Mulcahy for keeping the fires burning. You can find Pulse Check in all the usual spots, and even a few unusual ones. We are featured very, very awesomely on the front page of iTunes as a political favorite this week. You can always find me at ddiamondpolitico.com or at ddiamond on Twitter if you have suggestions about the podcast. And with that, let's get to C.C. Connolly. You were a reporter. <laughs> you were a reporter covering the Affordable Care Act. You literally wrote the book or or a book. I, I have book. it here. With colleagues, yes. With, with Alec McGillis and other colleagues. Right. On covering the health law. How much does what's going on right now around health care reform remind you of what happened in 2009 and 2010? Um, tons and none. So tons in the sense, and Dan, you and you, your listeners know this better than anyone, um, we're kind of out of new ideas in healthcare. We've had so many of these basic discussions around carrots and sticks and how do you get consumers to change behavior and how do you get doctors to do things that are valuable and, you know, how do you design products and price them correctly and cover the uninsured and all of that. We've been grappling with that for decades as a nation. So the terrain is very familiar. Um, when somebody says, hey, let's have a high-risk pool, it's like, oh, let me dig out the 2008 file folder, right? There are no new ideas in healthcare, just new selling pitches around those ideas. Exactly. And, you know, it's probably um, a good reminder, though, to all of us that even if we feel like we heard this a decade ago, it's it's always a good exercise to take a fresh look at things because maybe circumstances have changed, the market has changed, consumer attitudes, technology, you name it. So in some respects, yeah, this is just giant deja vu. On the other hand, I've been in in Washington since 92. I covered politics for a very long time, even before I got the health care bug. So the combination of the two, and I have to tell you, and I know there's a lot of this hyperbole in Washington these days, but I've never quite seen this exact environment. And what I mean by that is to have, first of all, 
a president that came into office without the usual infrastructure or baggage, if you will, that typically a party nominee enters office with. So, and again, whether you call it the infrastructure or the baggage, it's both. I mean, this president really doesn't owe anyone anything. And that, to me, can be thrilling because President Trump could potentially do things that no other politician in this country could pull off. And maybe we'll talk about drug pricing, Dan, because I think... One of your pet issues. It is one of and, my pet and one issues. Of his, one of the presidents. And, and, and um, you know, at POTUS, if you're listening, give me a call. We can talk. Um, we, we know he watches Fox and Friends and reacts. <laughs> I, I don't know how he is on the podcast. We need, to, we need to get him dialed in, Dan. If only we were being simulcast <laughs> on cable TV right now, CeCe, then I think we'd have a chance. All right. But to your point... He he is freed from all the usual strictures, which is which is both thrilling if you're hoping for breakthroughs and also terrifying if you're hoping for normalcy. If you're hoping for normalcy or you at least want to know that there are some rules of the road and some parameters that everybody has agreed to. And I know this sort of sounds like kind of the stodgy old Washington, like, you know, back in my day, we knew that there was a filibuster or whatever it was. But I think for everyone in the town to be able to work together, we have to at least agree on what are some of the basic parameters, whether it's civil discourse or certain parliamentary procedures or just engaging, you know, people in communication before you say there's a vote tomorrow. There, there needs to be some predictability for this town, for the process to run. And as we sit here on Thursday afternoon, so much is up in the air. Is there going to be a vote on this legislation? Will there be a vote in the House before the CBO score comes down, which is such a violation of how things not only have been done, but probably should be done if we care about good information before having lawmakers cast votes. Right. And, you know, back in my journalism days, we'd really stop and think about, okay, so real people out there, do they care about a CBO score? Do they even know what the CBO is? No, of course not. And we don't expect my mother or the kids that I grew up with in Pennsylvania to know those things or care about those things. But if we said, do you want to know what the implications of this bill are on your family and on your pocketbook, I think they'd say yes. I, I want to spend a little bit more just on your own background before getting to the policy ideas, because it's it's interesting to me. I read you so closely <laughs> during the ACA fight when you were writing it at the Washington Post. Do you think the media coverage of healthcare has changed significantly? And and you are speaking from an expert perspective as someone who wrote the coverage and now is is consuming it. I'm totally in awe of the healthcare reporters these days and and other reporters these days. I think that the job has gotten more demanding physically, mentally, you know, even kind of psychologically to tell you the truth. And you know, I'm not going to get on a journalism soapbox, but this stuff is complicated and the journalism world has gotten highly competitive. So you look at healthcare. I mean, when I first got into writing about healthcare, there were kind of like a few of us that would fit in a phone booth. And now every time I turn around, there are new healthcare publications There's that a are small army of newsletters popping up, the newsletters every single morning, and really the majority of it is quality stuff 
that happens very, very quickly. And so, uh, you know, I am in awe. I, I compliment and commend all of that. If I had a quibble, it would be encouraging maybe a few more journalists to get outside of the beltway and once in a while look at what's happening. And, you know, this is where I would give the shameless plug for Alliance of Community Health Plan members and all of the really cool stuff they're doing. And I'd invite you someday to take your podcast on the road and we'd go to middle America and we'd we'd get really excited um, but I'm, I'm down for that, by the way. I, I hope our producer Bridget is game for a trip to Wisconsin. But <laughs> oh, yeah. We have three members We're going to go visit Security Dan. Health. One of my favorites. Yes. No, really. Um, great, exciting stuff. But, you know, back to your kind of journalism question, obviously what's changed is the speed, the 24-7 nature of it. You know, when I was covering the 2000 political uh, campaign presidential race, um, every single night, it was the first really uh, presidential campaign where at 12.01 a.m., the major newspapers would put their front pages on the, you know, that thing, the internet. And so you'd get back to your hotel room after a long day of campaigning, you know, get into your jammies, get under the covers, and then you'd dial into the World Wide Web and in those days, I was at the Washington Post. So, of course, my dear friend, bitter rival, was Kit Seeley at the New York Times. And at 12.01, I would see what she had on the front page. And then I would begin to start sending the emails to my editors to apologize for why I had gotten my butt kicked the, that day into the next morning. And so that's when I really appreciated the stress of 24-7 news. I, I hate to break it to you. It's gone even more down that path. Last last question here, and be honest. Do you miss it? Do you miss the reporting? Oh, so hopefully none of my bosses are listening. <laughs> um, I, I miss my buddies in the newsroom. You know, that's still my DNA. Um, but I love the chance to spend every day with good guys in healthcare and to be really inspired. We just had our 30th annual symposium here in town. We had 120-some um, folks from around the country come and tell us what they're doing. And it's just totally inspiring. And so to get up every morning and really feel as if, well, at least, you know, we're trying to do something good here is a neat feeling for me at this point in my life. Not not taking anything away from your current job. There is something <laughs> addictive about being being on the deadline and being in the newsroom. Yep. The, 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 the hours are so much worse than, <laughs> than the rest of the real world. Let's pivot to what you are doing now, the Alliance of Community Health Plans. You've been the CEO now, I, I think, about a little a over a year. A year. Uh-huh. We have had Marilyn Tavener of AHIP, the, which represents the big health insurers, on this podcast before. How would you say that her members and, and their needs differ from the plans that you work with? Well, very importantly, we have some common members. Um, and that's, you know, like Kaiser. Yep. Kaiser Permanente, for instance. Um, but what I would say brings together the members of the Alliance of Community Health Plans is that we are all nonprofit, provider aligned and community sponsored. And each of those is pretty important elements. So the nonprofit piece um, I, I have stolen the words of Dr. David Feinberg from Geisinger. We do not answer to Wall Street. There are not quarterly earnings calls. We don't have that pressure to shareholders. And that just means that you can think more long term and you could think more holistically. 
I think that's liberating for people in healthcare to not have to worry about the, sh- the quarterly earnings calls. Um, but it's a difference. Uh, the other one, provider aligned. So many of our members have either integrated delivery systems, and that enables them to really do some fantastic collaborating, working closely together, um, or they at least have those close relationships. So we at ACHP care a lot about delivery innovation, maybe more than other insurance companies. And we certainly have been doing it for a really long time. And then the third piece is community-based. So one example, Care Oregon, our member out in Portland, Oregon, is building housing for the homeless. Okay, there is no DRG for building housing for the homeless, as you know, Dan. There, there maybe should be, given the focus on social determinants of, of health and population health. Bingo. So Care Oregon has a very significant Medicaid population, and they reached the conclusion that they would never really be able to achieve the health goals for that population as long as so many of them were homeless. So those are the sort of ways that our members take what few dollars they make and pump them back into the community. And I guess that's what really sort of gets me excited every day. Would you say that you're a supporter of the Affordable Care Act as it currently stands? Mm, Me personally? Sure, you personally. Um, I think that the Affordable Care Act took some very important steps in the right direction, particularly, as you know, around coverage. That was just an enormous hurdle and, frankly, a drag on our entire economy. I I think if you're giving the law a report card, that's the one piece where it gets the highest marks. Coverage expansion, 20 million-plus people have gained coverage. Exactly. And so many of those people never had health insurance. And I can tell you, I can give you examples such as Select Health, the plan, our member plan in Utah with Intermountain. Over the last three years, they have seen the health of their exchange population improve measurably because they've gotten them first coverage and then they've worked on that care piece. So while we all know having an insurance card doesn't guarantee health, it gets you in the door. And if it's at a good system and in a good plan, then good things really start to happen for that person. I'd give the ACA kind of middling remark uh, scores on um, Uh, baby steps toward quality, baby steps paying for value instead of volume. But lots to be fixed. And regardless of who won the presidency, we had a pretty long list of fixes ready last November for whoever came into the White House. Republicans are now moving, in, in their words, to fix the Affordable Care Act and other folks perspective. They're they're not fixing the law. They're tearing it down. As we sit and talk on Thursday afternoon, a lot is in flux. They're pushing for a potential vote, maybe as soon as Friday. Politico's own reporting suggests that's almost certainly not going to happen. They're too far away on on their whip uh, count. But if you are looking at what Republicans are pushing to change about the Affordable Care Act, is that good for your members? It's really a mixed bag. So we would give compliments and kudos to the administration and Congress for, frankly, addressing and responding to some things that we had been raising for years. So issues around um, gaming the system um, having to do with enrollment. So the classic case is the person who signs up for health coverage when they get the cancer diagnosis. As soon as they've been treated, they drop the coverage again. 
you know, that's what really skews the risk pool and drives up costs for everyone who's getting insurance. So we've seen some of those fixes, if you will, that are positive. Um, Positive for your members. (laughs) Absolutely. And, And we would say really positive for the vast majority of Americans, again, because that affects everybody's premiums and pricing. Um, We are concerned that some of the proposals to date on Medicaid um, are simply uh, the reductions are too steep too fast. And while we think there's a lot of area for improved efficiency, and we, we have plans that are doing that with managed Medicaid, um, you have to have a deeper appreciation of that population and its needs. Um, we like state flexibility, absolutely. The, the buzzword of the Trump administration on health care, that they're going absolutely. to give more flexibility to the states in this law, or, or what they're pushing to replace the Affordable Care Act, hands a lot of authority over to states. And we certainly hear from many of our plans that they work very closely with their state regulators, their state governors, their state Medicaid directors, et cetera, et cetera. They're closer to the ground. They're closer to the communities. Those are positive things. But you always want to make sure that there's at least that base floor protection for everyone. And so that can go to questions about essential health benefits. Um, We want to make certain that people, when they purchase health insurance coverage, it truly takes care of their needs. One one thing I wanted to ask you, Cece, because I've done some reporting here about the advocacy groups and their conversations with Republicans. I've got your book here from 2009, 2010, and how the Democrats were so good at working with the industry. Max Baucus said, everything's on the table. I just want you to come to the table and the American Hospital Association and the nurses and the insurance, like they, they were all there negotiating. That has not happened this time. And if anything, advocacy groups have come out again and again saying, we weren't consulted. My sources have told me that you have talked to the administration. You met, <laughs> met, met with Tom Price. As, is, is that true, that, that you and your members met with Tom Price even today? Would, would you say that there has been engagement from them on the issues that would have allowed this law to be written better? I don't, I don't want to divulge um, details, but we were really gratified. We had um, our board here in town this week for the symposium, and a number of our CEOs, um, we did have a chance to meet with Dr. Price. Uh, a so little you're confirming that you have met with Earlier him. today, yeah. yes. Um, uh, being a former journalist, I know there's um, not much value in, in trying to dodge and weave. So, um, uh Yes, we did. And what I would say was that um, Dr. Price was very gracious with his time. Um, He was very interested in hearing as many specifics as we could provide from around the country. So specifics about reaching rural populations, specifics around partnering with physicians, um, specifics about which regulations are getting in the way of innovative care delivery. So I think that, you know, without um, uh, giving away the store, um, he was uh, really seeking from us um, as much concrete real world data and information as we could provide. 
um, you are correct that until very recently, we were disappointed that there were not hearings. Um, healthcare represents one sixth of the U.S. economy, as you know, and to start contemplating major changes of that without hearing from patients, providers, plans, employers, just felt short-sighted to us. So maybe this has given everybody time to regroup and do a little more listening, I hope. The other thing I would just emphasize is that the Senate has been very interested in hearing, for instance, from our nonprofit plans. And we look to Senate discussion as an opportunity to really um, make this a very thoughtful process. Presumably, you had met with Secretary Burwell when she was in seat. Yes. Now you've, you've met with Secretary Price. What does Secretary Price do better or differently when listening to your concerns than Burwell did? Hmm. Well, you know, we're just getting to know Dr. Price, and his team is still just getting into place. Um, so it's a, a little bit hard to say right now. I also would just observe that, you know, he doesn't have his full infrastructure in place yet, um, but he brings that experience of a physician to the dialogue. And so one of the things that I observed not being a physician was that as he was talking to a number of our doctor CEOs, you know, they were really engaged in um, like talking about specific drug names, you know, rattling off these big long names of prescription drugs and how much they'd gone up in the past couple of years. And that was kind of neat to see that happening. It's it's probably been underreported how much being a physician plays into Price's identity. He was closely affiliated with the American Medical Association. There's also been some reporting that maybe he was linked with a more fringe medical association too. But that that is something he brings that previous HHS secretaries who were governors or university administrators, which incredibly important and a, a set of skills, but this, this gives him something else. You mentioned... Um, the engagement with with industry, and just kind of doubling back on this one more time in a different way. So many advocacy groups have come out and said, we don't like this Republican bill that I've heard from some Republicans, look, this is a sign of, of how good it actually is. The healthcare industry is one-sixth of the economy. We need to rein in healthcare cost. Maybe is it a good thing if the entrenched interest groups don't like what this bill would do. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have to laugh, Dan, because one of our very special uh, speakers at our symposium this week was Sister Carol Keehan. Of the Catholic, the Health, Catholic Association. Health Association. And she was uh, talking about this very subject. And um, she got um, quite indignant at the suggestion of um, uh, we being special interests. And she said, Patients and doctors and nurses and health plans are not special interests. So I'm going to just rely on the words of Sister Carol there. I think, though, to your point about um, shouldn't we rein in health care costs? Absolutely. You know, I can tell you whether I'm wearing my ACHP hat or just my CC hat. Absolutely. Healthcare in this country is too expensive. We all need to get serious about affordability. I've not really detected that 
element to the discussion the past few months. Yes, I understand people want premiums to come down. And I don't want to get on too much of a soapbox here. But if you want health insurance premiums to come down, get serious about drug prices. We, I, I promise you, we will talk about drug prices Yay! before this podcast is over. <laughs> and I think it is fair to say that everyone wants a fix on, on high costs. This legislation may not be the fix to get us there. Not the underlying costs. That's the problem. I mean, a lot of people can work out models and product design where maybe you spend a few less dollars, but then you have to look at what are you actually getting for those dollars. I mean, un- tackling underlying healthcare costs is really, really hard work because now you've got to compensate physicians differently. You've got to compensate them for the outcomes as opposed to just piecemeal factory work, which is fee-for-service medicine. You've got to convince the American electorate that newer, better, more, more, more is not necessarily better. I mean, this is hard work. And, And that's the message that has been sold by hospitals, by insurers, by others for years and years, that every hospital needs to have the most cutting edge imaging equipment or this fancy cancer pavilion, and and maybe they don't. Sticking with the issue that I think is top of mind for your members, beyond the big legislation, the Obamacare subsidies, the cost-sharing reduction payments. Mm -hmm. This is another black box as we're sitting down and talking on Thursday afternoon. Mm -hmm. Politico had reported on Wednesday that the president was backing off his plan to use those subsidies as leverage in government shutdown talks and that the White House would continue to pay them out. Now, as we were as we were talking, there has been a little bit of murkiness around how long will those subsidies be paid? Is that actually going to happen or not? What what are you hearing? Cece Connolly, head of <laughs> head of a major organization and former reporter herself. Dan, it's honestly a head scratcher. <laughs> I could tell you that for um, months now, Republicans at the highest levels have acknowledged to us privately and have said publicly that they understand the importance of these cost-sharing subsidies to working families. The money doesn't go to our plans. The money helps cover their co-payments of, frankly, middle-class working Americans. And when you bring it up, they all get it. But then you see kind of this back and forth political football kind of stuff. And I know in Washington, you've got to do a lot of negotiating and you need to have leverage and, and all of that stuff. And, um, I, you know, I can even say, wow, some of that's kind of fascinating to watch it all unfold. These deal makers, they're really skilled at deal making and maybe I'll learn something from it. But we're getting down to the point now where <laughs> this is actually going to start hurting Real American families who are sitting there looking at these headlines saying to themselves, do I have coverage or don't I have coverage? Um, Can I afford my co-payments or not? And that's when we really need somebody to just um, commit, frankly. It's April 27th. When do your members need to know by to decide if they're going to participate in the ACA exchanges? It varies by state, but the vast majority will go with that new federal deadline of June 21. So that means that actuaries, the number crunchers, 
they need several weeks back from June 21 to actually put together prices on products. And so, you know, we're a matter of weeks away from them making those decisions. And I want to emphasize here, I am not hearing from our nonprofit plans that they are looking to exit markets, in part because the quote-unquote market that they would exit is their hometown. So they would be explaining to their neighbor, their colleague, their best friend, why they just left town. Great point. This isn't like United Healthcare pulling out of a state where they're not doing well and pouring resources into a state that they are doing well. This is this is it. This them. is it. This is the hometown. And so every single one of them that I talk to, they say, we're doing everything we can to make this work and to stay in. Um, and uh, we've really tried to convey that commitment to these communities. But they say, okay, so then if we hang in, how do we make the math work? And for most of them, the math becomes an additional 10 to 20 percent increase on the premiums. And they understand how terribly onerous that would be. They don't want to go down that path. But another thing that people in Washington forget, health plans are regulated at their state level. And state regulators are looking to make certain that plans remain solvent. And so Part of the reason that they sometimes push up those premiums is to demonstrate, yeah, we'll be able to pay our bills. And that's the the crux of it right now. So it sounds like plans are engaged in kind of multiple scenario planning. If, mm-hmm. if these subsidies get funded, if they don't get funded, where do you think the balance of their planning is right now? Are they bracing for the subsidies to get pulled or do they still hope beyond hope that it's going to going to stay? Um, I'm I'm happy to say we have an optimistic group. (laughs) And at the end of the day, they believe that leaders in Washington want to do what's right for working families and that they don't want to be, um, frankly, um, pinned with uh, the burden of millions of Americans losing insurance next year. And so we remain optimistic. And we will remain glued to the to the drama, perhaps a drama that nobody wants, but a drama that's that's incredibly important around the subsidies. Pivoting back now to the drug pricing issue and kind of our last last big question here. I remember either watching an interview with you or, or reading it from months ago. You predicted or, or worried that the drug issue would fall off the table with the new administration, that there was so much focus last year and that it would just be be swiped away. Has that happened? Mm, not entirely. And I guess I'm a little torn as to which way this may go. So what I was feeling immediately after the election was that there was a lot of campaign rhetoric from everyone about doing something about drug pricing. And then it kind of went really quiet. Then we saw really some pretty courageous comments slash tweets from the president uh, about drug pricing and how unsustainable and unfair it is. And And how they were getting away with murder. He, I believe, did say that. (laughs) Yes. And so we, again, started getting hopeful that there might be some bipartisan opportunity here. 
Um, and and I'm still hanging on to that hope because it's very much a part of our discussions with the administration and Congress. And also because you're an optimistic person. <laughs> I, guess, I, guess, I guess that I am. But I will tell you, we heard from a uh, Wall Street investor earlier this week, and he was more pessimistic than me and still feels that – the pharmaceutical industry is so powerful. I hope I hope maybe that's changing, but he was kind of a splash of cold water. We had the head of the pharma uh, lobbying group, Stephen Ubel, right on the podcast after he met with the president. And it was telling to look at the rhetoric that Trump had before that meeting and then afterwards where he walked back some of his criticism of the of the industry. I'm just going to throw one number out here, Dan, and I hope that I um, read it and remember it correctly. Um, there was just first quarter lobbying reports filed, and I believe that that pharma trade group spent between seven and eight million dollars on lobbying in the first quarter of this year. Now, I don't want to embarrass myself. But that lobbying for one quarter exceeds our annual budget significantly. Well, they, they are a huge industry that is frightened for its life right now. So given all of the uncertainty, all of the things that we just talked about that are undecided, the subsidies, the fate of the legislation, when are you hoping for clarity for your members on, on the health care issue? When do you think the Trump administration is going to move off health care and move on to the next big thing, whatever it might be? Mm. Well, I appreciate um, lawmakers that make campaign promises and want to deliver on them. I know that that is a powerful force. And so I do expect that they will do everything in their power to have a vote, um, particularly in the House of Representatives. Um, how quickly, it's a little hard for me to tell. They're only here in town for two weeks, and then there's another recess. So maybe they try to get that in before the next recess, because every time that lawmakers go home, they have those conversations that can be um, uncomfortable and challenging. Um, but honestly, uh, when it comes to the cost-sharing reductions, um, we need some clarity on that very, very quickly. Well, we, we will get some clarity on whether they're part of the government shutdown talks or not very, very soon. <laughs> Cece Connolly, head of the Alliance for Community Health Plans, thank you for making time. My pleasure. Hey, it's Dan Diamond, and we at Politico want to take a minute to hear from you as valued Pulse Check listeners. So if you've got two minutes, just two minutes, can you fill out our brief survey on the podcast? You can go to politico.com slash podcast survey. Politico's other podcasts have been running ads for this survey. I want to make sure that Pulse Check doesn't get overlooked. So if you go to politico.com slash podcast survey, you can weigh in on what you'd like to hear about the podcast. We can learn a little bit more about you, our listeners. Again, politico.com slash podcast survey. And with that, let's get now to Cynthia Cox of the Kaiser Family Foundation. She's going to walk us through what the Obamacare subsidy fight is all about, and what it means for the health insurance market. Starting out, there have always been, at least as long as the exchange markets have been around, there have always been some parts of the country with only one insurance company. Those tend to be rural areas that are sparsely populated. Alaska, Alaska. Mississippi. Yeah, and these states or these counties even, um, you know, have had 
trouble attracting insurance companies to participate, but also probably because there are a few hospitals there too, and that makes it a less attractive market to begin with. So these aren't necessarily problems caused by the ACA, but it's become more visible because there's more transparency, there's more data out there, and so we can see exactly where there are these trouble spots. Um, also, also, it's become more political, which right. has attracted <laughs> more partisan fighting on either side. Right. Um, but but going into 2017, there became more trouble spots or more areas of concern. And and that was, was uh, you know, we saw there being a couple of hundred counties with only one insurer to being more than a thousand. And so now one in every three counties only has one insurer on the exchange. Um, a lot of those exits... I, ju- I just want to pull up on that number. One in every three counties yeah. only has one insurer. So that that is fact. That's not partisan bickering. That is what your team has found. Yeah, that is that is definitely true. Um, it, it, at the same time, it's not one in three people because, again, these are rural counties that are sparsely populated. Um, so if you look at a map, it maybe looks a little bit worse than if you looked at where those people um, are actually living. You know, most people on the exchange have a choice of more than three insurance companies, but for the people who live in those rural areas, they don't have much choice. Thinking about this, last year, there was the period of several weeks, I think, when in Arizona County, Pinal County, Pinal County, I I can't remember what what county it was, or I remember how to spell it, I can't remember how to say it, but the county that didn't have an insurer for at least a brief period of time, that was eventually plugged ahead of the, the exchange markets opening back up. Looking ahead right now, Cynthia, how many counties are in in this potential Obamacare desert? So we know of at least 16 counties in Tennessee that are at risk of having no insurance company next year. Um, But I would say that, that it's really hard to put a number on it right now because there's so much political and regulatory uncertainty that, just to give an example, um, Iowa has had pretty strong insurer participation. They've had four insurance companies participating, three of which are most in most parts of the state. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Wellmark exited, and then two days after that, Aetna exited. And, and it, it seemed like it was creating a bit of a cascade of insurer exits, and in the state at least. And now there's only one insurance company in most of the state. So, And both companies, when they exited, cited this kind of political instability and uncertainty around what's happening in these markets as a main reason why they're leaving. So I think... There might be some counties in Tennessee that are at risk, but then there could be states like Iowa that we never would have thought were at risk, and now they are possibly at risk of having no insurance company in some parts of the state. The tactics that can be used to plug those holes, we talked a bit at the time last summer with Kevin Cunahan when Arizona was losing insurers, and, and he talked about kind of the negotiations to make sure that payers, carriers would, would come back. What realistically can the administration do to bring these carriers back on board, and if they even want to? I, I think that there's there's certainly a question about whether they want to or not. Um, but the I think the big payoff has to be long term stability for these insurance companies. Uh, again, we've seen that they're on a path towards profitability in this market, um, but that might take some time. It might take another year or two. And if there's promise of 
uh, the individual mandate either being repealed or not being enforced, if if there's questions about whether the cost-sharing subsidy payments are going to be made, uh, that makes it seem like this market is not going to be stable. So they're, they're, at, at a minimum, what needs to be done is for some of these big questions to be answered very clearly and, and for there to be a, a clear timeline, too, in terms of if repeal and replace does go forward, that 2017 is off the table, 2018 is off the table. So that insurers at least know what the rules of the game are going to be. Um, and then there's probably many, many more policy things that, that could be done to make the market more attractive. Um, but at a minimum, those are the things that need to happen first. Is it fair to say that the direction right now is insurers are walking away from the exchanges if you kind of looked more broadly than insurers are walking to the exchanges? Certainly more so than walking towards the exchanges, they are walking away, although I think some are indicating that they'll stay. Um, and and so we've only seen a couple of states filing so far or even know which insurers are staying where in a couple of states. Um, but I think that, that insurers are, are very concerned about what's going to happen with the cost-sharing subsidy payments and with the individual mandate. They They can still file their plans now and back out later. They aren't necessarily locked in until shortly before open enrollment begins this fall. So they might hedge their say, bets. Yeah, they might say that they're going to participate for now and then keep that as an option, but then always have one foot out the door in case something changes. One of the big uncertainties, and, and one reason I wanted to talk to you today, Kaiser just came out with a new report on the Affordable Care Act subsidies and what happens if those are discontinued, either because the lawsuit gets dropped, because the Trump administration decides they're not going to pay. There are multiple ways that they might not get paid. And your team was looking at the practical implication of what happens in those markets. Can you walk me through the big takeaway? Sure. So so the big takeaway is that while the government would save money by not making the cost-sharing payments, they would save about $10 billion on that. $10 billion next year. Next year in 2018. Um, it would actually cost $12.3 billion more in, in premium tax credits. I can walk you through the reasoning for that. But, but the gist is that it would actually cost the government more to stop making these payments than it would to continue making these payments. And that's if the insurance companies stay in the Affordable Care Act exchanges and kind of cross-subsidize the lost funds from the subsidies with more funding via tax credits right. by, by hiking their premiums. Right. So they, they would have insurance companies are still required to offer these low copay, low deductible plans to low income people. Um, they're not going to do that for free. They're not going to do that at a loss. So they have to raise premiums in order to do that. Um, they're required to, to offer those plans by law. So they would have to raise their premiums in order to cover their costs. Um, by raising their premiums, that also means that silver plan premiums or the benchmark premium that's used to calculate the subsidy also increases. Now, if premium tax credits increase, that affects all people who are enrolled on the exchange who are getting a tax credit, not just the low income, the lowest income people who are getting the cost sharing subsidy. So on net, the, the federal government is going to end up paying more in tax credits and then they're saving in cost-sharing subsidies. And that's $2 billion next year per year analysis, and then $30 billion, $31 billion if you're mapping that out over 10 years. Right, That's and that's the additional cost. I think that, that what this all boils down to is that it, it could be 
uh, an effective negotiation strategy in some ways. I can see why the Trump administration is is saying that they're maybe not going to make these payments anymore in order to bring Democrats uh, into the negotiation room. But um, but I think the effect of this is is that the it would destabilize the market. Um, on one hand, insurers might leave. Um, there might be more people who are uninsured if if there's no insurance company available in their county or their state. Um, or if insurance companies stay, then it ends up costing the government more. So it's, it's in some ways, it's a lose-lose situation. And, and I think based on our polling, we've seen that the public feels that the Trump administration and Republicans in Congress now own the Affordable Care Act. And, and that's only trending one way. Increasingly, right. they are, are putting the responsibility on the current administration. Right. And so, yeah, and so the, the public now in the majority feels that if there are new problems that come about with the Affordable Care Act, that's going to be on the Trump administration or Republicans in Congress. Let's just talk for a moment about timing. We're sitting down. It's Tuesday afternoon. There's a government shutdown potentially looming within a couple days. And one of the trading points is around these these subsidies. When does the administration need to decide logistically that they are going to fund these or not? I mean, really, for insurance companies, they needed to know yesterday. They needed to know a month ago whether they were going to be getting these payments or not, because they need to file their plans uh, for next year. They need to know what the premiums are going to be. They need to know, um, you know, where they're going to decide to participate. And, and insurance companies by now would have known that if it weren't for all of the political and regulatory uncertainty around this. So they've been given an extension to file these plans, um, but they really need to know now. And and so, again, they might still file uh, their, their plans for next year in early June, but then still have some time to back out if, if this hasn't been clarified by then. Since I have you, I, I kind of want to flip the focus for a second and not talk about the politics, but the actual players, the insurance companies that are participating. Which insurers do you think, Cynthia, are doing well and can be exemplars to other companies here? And which ones haven't done so well? Because there have been different ones that have been touted at times. And I'm just curious, in April 2017, what the reality is. So what we've seen is that there are, I would maybe group insurers into kind of three different uh, buckets in a way. Um, the Blue Cross Blue Shield plans have been in the individual market for a long time. They've been the major player in the individual market in most states. Um, and they price their plans on average relatively high uh, compared to their competitors, but probably more appropriately in retrospect. So, um, you know, it, as we've seen, some companies came into this market pricing very low, but they lost a lot of money and in many cases failed and had to exit. And that was the co-op plans, whereas the Blue Cross Blue Shield plans in general were on the other side of that. Of course, some Blue Cross Blue Shield plans have also lost money too, but that's one theme that we've seen. And then that the blues are the backbones of the exchange. Right. Yeah. Um, and then uh, there, there were the United Health plans um, and, and, and plans like that where they came in operating a bit more like an employer coverage plan. So they had broader networks, um, somewhat higher premiums, um, but people didn't tend to migrate towards those plans. And also it, it turned out not to be a good competitive strategy um, relative to Centene or Molina, these Medicaid managed care plans that came in with narrow networks, lower premiums, and in many cases were pretty competitive and successful in the exchanges. Closing question. 
So you have been studying the ACA, authoring reports, working with your colleagues to see the implementation of the law. What what has that taught you or, or shown you about Republican strategy now as they look to potentially take the law apart? Well, I think that this this one issue today with the cost sharing subsidies is, is just an example of how difficult it is to unwind the ACA piece by piece. And we've seen this with the individual mandate, um, with the essential health benefits, with, with any one piece of the law. If you start chipping away at it, it's it's so interconnected with other pieces of the law. And, and it can have ramifications that, that go well beyond it, some of which are predictable and others might not be. Um, with the cost-sharing subsidies, if you take away the cost-sharing subsidies, it increases the premium tax credit cost. So it increases the cost of the government. Um, with the individual mandate, um, you know, again, if you try to repeal that or or not enforce it, then that could make premiums skyrocket. And and I think that this has been the challenge in the way that the Republicans in Congress have tried to go about repeal and replace. Um, they've been trying to do it through budget reconciliation, uh, which narrows their options. It makes it so that they, in many ways, have to try this piecemeal approach. Right. Um, but It's it, like a Swiss cheese approach to the law, like you're picking holes in it. And it makes no one happy because it's leaving parts of the ACA, but also not totally getting rid of it. And having a lot of uh, negative repercussions in, in other parts of the law that, that you know, basically the rising premiums or, or other things that can come about from this is uh, it makes it difficult to make their constituents happy um, and, it, and it angers Democrats. You're, you're one of the nation's foremost experts on the insurance markets and, and the Affordable Care Act. If you had Donald Trump in an elevator for 60 seconds, what would you tell him? Um, I think that as far as the general approach of trying to make it, the markets explode um, or, or trying to, to force Democrats to the negotiation table with these kind of extreme measures of, of uh, cutting cost-sharing subsidies or cutting the individual mandate um, and making the market collapse – um, that's not necessarily going to be a winning proposition. And and I think, you know, just based on our polling, we've also seen that, that people are moving more and more towards being either favorable of the ACA or at least not approving of the general strategy to make it collapse. Um, I think people want a real stable transition into whatever the new repeal and replace effort might be, um, or they want to keep the ACA and, and improve it. It's almost like tweeting that you're going to sabotage the law is not the best approach to policy making. <laughs> Cynthia Cox from the Kaiser Family Foundation, thank you so much for making time. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's it for Pulse Check this week. Thanks again to Cece Connolly and Cynthia Cox for making time to join the podcast. Thank you to Jason Millman and Bridget Mulcahy again for all of their work this month. You can find Pulse Check on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Overcast, all the podcast apps, we should be there. Listen, rate us, subscribe, download, and tell a friend. And tell me what you'd like to hear at ddiamond at politico.com. And we'll be back with a new episode of Pulse Check next week. <laughs>